0: welcome to glass houses a billy joel
1: podcast
0: i'm michael grosvenor and i'm jack Fernino. join us as we dig deep into billy joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us By 1984, Billy Joel was known for changing styles from album to album. What's less recognized was how often he changed voices. And, one night that year in England, those voices were all on display.
1: Close listening to any Billy Joel record reveals a variety of tones, accents, and affectations in the singing. Add to that the many impressions he's done over the years in interviews and concerts. Many of them were on display
0: and front and center when Billy and the band took the stage at Wembley Arena in June of 1984. Deep into the Innocent Man tour, the concert was simulcast on radio and television in Europe.
1: As a result of it being broadcast, the mix is often more dry and a little muted with the singing more prominent than usual. At the same time, Billy seemed to be leaning into the many different vocal affectations more often than usual. The
0: concert itself is a great performance, with the band augmented by a horn section and a guest star and a baby on the way. But in particular, it's an excellent showcase for Billy's so called rubber voice.
1: Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel at Wembley Arena in 1984.
0: Michael, here's what I found odd about this concert, or at least off-putting. A lot of it felt lonely, and I I had to give it some thought about a quarter of the way through. I keyed on to a few reasons why it feels like that. Uh, But the last one turns out to be a blessing in disguise, in my opinion, and gave me my sort of through line or my thesis for this concert. Okay, so the three things that are happening is, one, this is coming off the magnanimous uh, Life from Long Island which just feels like a party. The house lights are up pretty much the whole time, Mm -hmm. obviously for filming. It's directed by John Small, who had been Billy's friend for years and years. And as we had seen on on that one and Shea Stadium, he gets a more intimate look at Billy. He's just able to kind of peel back, really get there. None of that is present here. He's on the other side of the pond, as they say. And, you know, he doesn't have his buddy directing it. The other thing is the lighting in a lot of places. It looks cool, but like, Every band member, a lot of times, is just lit up themselves and there's darkness in between them. So it makes them look really isolated. You know, for a band that yeah. really cracks as a unit, it's a little off-putting, especially when you're used to seeing some of these other bootlegs or and seeing these other videos or listening to older concerts. And the last thing, I think, is because it was mixed for television and radio, sometimes you get like a, a weird mix out of that that's not as bombastic. Live from Long Island, they had plenty of post-production time to make it as vibrant as possible. In this case, you're doing it on the fly. And I think I identified at least one point where somebody was like a a half step behind on the sound and Uh the sound got wonky for a second. Yeah. But the advantage to that, in my opinion, is that the weird isolatedness of the sound really let me focus on Billy's singing and not just his singing, but his various voices. And that to me is really what's at the forefront of this Mm -hmm. concert. We've said it before, and actually when I spoke with uh, very quickly Mariel Beaumont from Church Girls, who just discovered Glass Houses, she's a guitar player and singer, uh, singer-songwriter, although she hates the term singer-songwriter, and I chide her with it whenever I can. Uh, and her boyfriend's a, a producer, and he they had been talking about it, and he put it on, and she was talking about how you come up with different voices that you might sing in from song to song, and that's something Billy really does well, and she had keyed into that when listening to Glass Houses, and we've keyed into it too. What Mm -hmm. makes it super interesting is that there's Billy's voices and then there's Billy's impressions and then his innocent man voices. So like on an innocent man, because he's paying homage in so many places, he's adopted like a third set of voices that he might be using at any given time. Yeah. And these are not only all on display during this concert, but also he consciously or not slips between them, sometimes in the middle of a line. (laughs) Sometimes not when they occur in the studio. I don't think he knows, or we will ever know, of course, you know how conscious any of this was. But because of the way this is mixed, you can really focus on his various vocal deliveries. And that is what really made this concert interesting to me. That and the drum sound was spectacular.
1: Yeah, Liberty and Billy were the two things I found myself keying into a lot on this episode for those reasons. And again, we're talking about the London 1984 concert, which... It's really the only pro shot footage of that tour that we've seen.
0: And we're going to get more into that in a moment, but let's dip into the mailbag
1: and then we'll get back into this concert. What do you say? Yeah, that sounds good. This first one is from Adam from San Diego. He writes, Hi fellas, I'm really enjoying catching up on your podcast. I just discovered it a couple weeks ago. I especially enjoy your album breakdowns, though I realize with Billy's limited output, you will have to spread them out accordingly. I thought of a topic that could be a whole episode for you. As a kid growing up in the 80s, before my musical tastes expanded a bit in college, my big obsessions were Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, and the Beatles. Now, what was the difference between these three acts? Well, two were, slash are, highly acclaimed, critically beloved acts, and one was considered terrible, schlocky, lightweight, and derivative. I remember being shocked when I first read the Rolling Stone record guide from the early eighties edited by Dave Marsh and discover that Bruce and the Beatles were rock legends. And Billy was a joke. Was there really that much of a difference in quality? I didn't get it. But of course that book wasn't an outlier. Billy's albums were trashed by most rock critics throughout his entire album making run. I'd love an episode that discusses how Billy was perceived in the seventies and eighties by critics. Why maybe that was and how has musical legacy evolved over time for better or worse? Or if it has at all. Also, fuck Dave Marsh. Thanks for listening to my idea. <laughs> the best, Adam from San Diego.
0: Adam from San Diego, thanks. I don't know if we could pull a whole episode out of this, although knowing us, we probably could. But this is an excellent question. It's something we've certainly touched on from time to time. It's impossible to do a podcast about Billy Joel and not. But you you put it in really good terms and you, and you posit three interesting artists to consider billy joel springsteen and the beatles because here's the funny thing lyrically speaking there's a lot of schlocky ass beatles songs out there right and springsteen too i mean a lot of people hate springsteen man there's some schlock in later springsteen and if you're not into springsteen it's all schlock so <laughs> <you>
1: know, right <laughs>
0: exactly the thing about the beatles where they were coming out of like lightweight bubblegum pop so they sort of get excused for their like banal lyrics especially early on and but i gotta right. be honest with you like you know i am the walrus doesn't mean anything john lennon even said it doesn't mean anything but that, you know so there was a whole lot of sonic groundbreaking kind of stuff there as much as i love springsteen i have to admit that he was simply marketed right it was that whole john landau i have seen the future of rock and roll let's get him on newsweek and time yep. the same week for when born to run comes out the funny thing about Springsteen, and I was, I was going to get into this argument with somebody and somehow I managed to back down because I think this was going to become a Facebook flame war. He was like, oh, Springsteen just does all this like Heartland America stuff. And it's like, no, he didn't. Right. Like if you add up the the number of songs where Springsteen was a middle-aged nine to five guy, it's not the bulk of his albums. His first three albums were like about teenagers and kids in their young 20s. So was Half of Darkness on the Edge of Town. The other half was factory and stuff like that, where they were getting older. It's a little bit on the river. It's a little bit on born to run. And it's also, it's all over tunnel of love. Right. After that, it's gone again, you know, but that's what people didn't like about Billy Joel because Billy Joel pretty much was that the whole time. Now, Billy Joel, I think wrote, I wouldn't say he wrote those lyrics better than Springsteen. And maybe us, maybe I will. (laughs) I think because Billy Joel spread that out over pretty much all his albums, he got pigeonholed that way. Certainly, neither there Springsteen nor the Beatles were ever considered suburban. They were always in their way misfits yeah. or that kind of thing, or like outside the norm. And you know that's what rock critics wanted, wanted to be. I mean, you know, these were guys that like wanted to be as as probably were outcasts, just like their musician heroes. But couldn't become their musician hero, so that that's who they gravitated towards. Yeah, and I get it because I, you know, I I certainly have a musical music snob streak in me um, sure. that I've tried to temper in recent recent years. I know I'm going on a long time. I'll let you talk. I swear to God, Michael, you'll get your say. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's who those guys were. Now, funny enough, I think Billy Joel now is way more popular than Springsteen. I think Springsteen made that mistake Billy Joel warned about. He diluted his catalog way too much. There's been like all these E Street band and random albums over the last couple of years that I don't think people are really into them. I'm not. I mean, I heard like a little bit of letter to you and I was like, ah, I'm going to stop right now. Like, I'm not bothering with somebody conjecture. That's probably why he sold his catalog because, you know, he wasn't getting songs on the radio anymore. you hear Billy on the radio. You really don't hear Springsteen. I think it's because he diluted it. And I think it's because he got political. And no matter what side of that fence you're on, I think it just took away the timelessness of his music. Billy Joel gets to play a show every every month at Madison square garden now. So I think it's been, and people have already been kind of retconning their opinions of Zilly Joel critically where they're, they're kind of admitting now that it wasn't as bad as they made it out to be.
1: Yeah. And you know, spring scene mostly just kind of developed into more of a live act that he was known for. And you know, he still tours aggressively and his shows and set list have kind of become like Pearl Jam is in like the dead were, where it was just like a different show every night and things like that. So like he kind of became a different beast. Like you said, though, he kept putting out all these albums, album-wise, he kind of fell off around when Billy stopped. You know, Billy just, for better or worse, seemed to have the foresight and be like, you know what, I I don't think I can get better, or I don't feel like I have anything more to say. Like I think Billy was afraid of it devolving into something that he didn't like, so he stopped before it got to that point.
0: So we'll read one more letter. Uh, This is from Andy Richardson. This is actually two letters. Uh, We kind of put them together because we've had some correspondence with him. And he writes, I just finished episode 60 about the MTV show. I think this might be one of your best podcasts yet. I liked the effort that you put into editing in the clips. It really makes a big difference to actually hear what was said as you were talking about it. Great job as always. And then in response to Michael's Nylon Curtain Playlist episode... He wrote, this is the best idea you've had yet. I hope you eventually get around to doing this for every album. I've been listening to podcasts now for almost 15 years. And this is the first one that I've ever put in my favorites folder, knowing I will listen to it more than once. Great work, guys. Andy, wow. thank you very much. Yeah. I guess this is a big thank you for Michael, because uh, this is all his effort, you know, adding in the clips at the end and putting together that awesome live nylon curtain uh, <laughs> playlist. So good on you, Michael. I don't know. Should we do that for everyone or uh, maybe we'll do that eventually?
1: Well, you know, I, I responded to him. I think there are some albums we could do it for, um, like The Stranger. I know they did that on Sirius XM. They call it Dream Concert or something like that. So there's a few albums we could certainly do that for, but a lot of these albums have not been played live in their entirety. Yeah. So that's kind of where we run into it. Um, You know, Piano Man. I don't think has been fully done. Street Life has not, maybe. Has he ever done Roberta? I believe so. Mm. Someone said he did Roberta in 2015, but hang on. The New Yorker maybe festival. Maybe it's Santa. Oh, it he, he was just something where he did a few seconds of it, a few, like a minute of it. And he's playing it on an acoustic grand piano in the original key. So it's a little up there. Um, but yeah, if like skimming through these albums, there's usually at least one song that has never been played live. So I'm all for looking through it. And if we've got any albums where everything's been done live, Glass Houses, I don't think he's done Through the Long Night, maybe. See, all these albums, there's at least a song or two where it seems like they haven't been played live. Surprisingly, of them, the Nylon Curtain is one that I could find. I'll bet you he's never done
0: 52nd Street live. Song? No. That would be the other album you think he would do every song on, but that
1: kills it at the end he's done half a mile. Rosalinda's eyes. I think they've maybe done. I saw the Lords do it at least. So I'm yeah, the Lords definitely done have done Rosalinda's eyes. Yeah, because once he got into the '80s, like a lot of songs from Piano Man were played live because that was only his second album. So he You're right, <laughs> like early on, he played a lot of those early albums. But by the time the '80s r- rolled around and he had all the hits, he didn't play everything from every album just because. He had so much real estate to cover. Yeah. If there's other albums out there, I'll, I'll certainly be open to doing more of them because it was it was a fun exercise to put together, fun to go back and listen to because it was different snapshots of his career. And funny enough, everything but one song were all recorded in New York. I, I, oh, yeah. I didn't realize it until after the fact.
0: So let's dive into Wembley, 1984. Do you have a background on this, Michael? I do. You
1: know me. All right. <laughs> so yeah, it was broadcast across Britain. So I deduced that it was June 8th, 1984, and maybe the ninth there was a few days around it. Uh, And the reason I kind of landed on it is because Billy mentioned several times that Liberty's wife is about to give birth at any moment. His daughter Tori and Tori DeVito was born June 8th, 1984. So that's kind of where where I kind of landed on that. So based on that, I think it was June 8th, 1984, and it was done at Wembley Arena in London. Yeah. So this was a, uh, you know, a broadcast over there and obviously on VHS, Dave's made its way over here to America. And this is the from a piano man to an innocent man tour 1984. So what's interesting too, is though the album did come out in 83, he didn't tour it until 84. You know, now the Billy Joel hasn't been touring over albums, you know, basically the, the setup and the staging and all that pretty much of the last decade plus has Pretty much remain the same. Contrast that to the 70s and the 80s when every couple years there was a new studio album. Each of those albums had a brand new, unique tour with a brand new, unique stage, brand new setup, brand new everything. And so these are so fascinating for me to see because it's a snapshot of, you know, a year or two in time. It almost
0: looks like what's going to become the design for the bridge it's it's already getting spare
1: yeah it was it was a fun watch i've seen this several times and there's recently been a couple cleaned up versions of it as well that give a a better audio and visual um treat that being said why don't we just you want to just jump into it sure the intro uh now i don't know if
0: this is walk-on music or if this is just what they use for the broadcast is a tape of the Mexican Connection.
1: It was. It's something that they did use in the 70s, I believe, a bit, and came back right. here in the 80s. So I think that was what they had played right before the band went on stage. It was different on a couple other tours. Now, on the Nylon Curtain tour, it was Chain Gang. Right. And on the Bridge tour, it was Rhapsody in Blue. And then I forget what it was on Stormfront tour, but I think River of Dreams on Forward it was the natural, which he uses to this day. But at any rate, that
0: leads, leads right into Angry Young Man as the opener. And the two things I notice immediately is that this tempo is slow. Yeah. These are We have some very professional tempos the entire time, but this one I think was a hair slow. But I think by the second round of drum fills, they bring it up a notch. Yeah. And this is also the moment where like, wow, these drums sound great. This makes it feel a little like isolated because like the drums are so prominent and echoey that it almost makes it feel like it's in an empty room right like maybe i'm just used to that because i've, I've played in studios where it's just you in the room and you're like you know you just hear the whole sound blossom because there's yeah. nothing else in there but yeah. it sounded like the hall was empty but right i mean the, the, the tone of the drums was amazing on this
1: yeah it really was and you know i noticed too you know despite it starting a tick slower um there was a couple couple flubs going on maybe a little yeah. jittery nervous with the camera crew and you know that that can certainly happen what I was struck by as well during this song was, you know, the first shot I got of Liberty's drums, he had written on his drum heads, happy birthday, Tori.
0: I couldn't see who it was to. I saw yep. happy birthday. It said Tori. So he knew. Uh...
1: <laughs> yep. So they already have <laughs> the, name. Had the name. picked. Yeah. Right. Yep. yep. Yeah. So they did quite a few shots over his shoulder and yeah, you got to see it, which is cool. Yeah.
0: I like the synths on this. Usually I don't like the 80s synths, but I like the way this cut through. And my other note, which comes in later, I guess, is
1: what the hell is Mark wearing? (laughs) I know. I have holy 80s clothes, Batman. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Everyone really had that 80s flavor going on. And again, like I always do, how crazy it is that so many of these things are only a short period of time apart. But this is only a year and a half away from Live from Long Island. We are into three years of this podcast. It was only half (laughs) of that time. That these two apart were and they couldn't be more different in the way it looks so
0: that's a little bit of what mars the beginning for me
1: feels very professional
0: at the beginning right before he gets off the chain a little if we're gonna get off the chain i guess we get a little bit of a solo from liberty going into my life we've seen this before i believe uh houston 78 knocks around a little on the drums 79 right it's almost uh, ahead of its time if you will the mm-hmm. way he's he's leaving like odd rests in there I mean, maybe yeah. Vinnie Kaliuta was doing that back then too, but sort of something you'll hear in like contemporary jazz sometimes where guys will like, Dude, just they'll leave you nudging and then right. they'll really like displace the one like that and put in odd rests. So that's what he's doing here.
1: Yeah, and it's fascinating that he does that going into a song with such a straight groove. Yeah. So it really is a very different way to set it up. They did an intro on the Live from Long Island thing but they cut it. It didn't make the final. And that's why it seems kind of sudden that it just kind of starts with the count in and the band's like already fully in. It's because the little jam intro didn't make the cut of the video.
0: Oh, okay. Billy counts off in French, speaking of the count-in this time. Yep. Love Doug's bass Um, on this song. I do like the lineup up front. Everybody's in in one straight line at the front of the stage. Uh, Not a lot of people kind of do that. And I think it's really... Noticeable for Billy Joel because he's on the side where there's not even like a sort of a triangle or a stagger there Yeah, this is also a little busier. We have a little more in the way of drum fills We also have a lot more harmonies I'm fairly certain that these are harmonies we didn't hear on the record Nor are they on a lot of the other tours although they might be there and then they're just way more prominent because of the way the vocals are mixed for this production
1: And more singers on this tour.
0: Oh yeah, which we'll get into later, certainly. And this is the first time we start hearing him, really can start focusing on his singing. He's in great voice in this concert. He's got a lot of control over it. He's got a lot of really sweet notes. Not that he ever had to shout, but he's got like a nice vibrato going in places.
1: Billy is in fine vocal form, and that's something you often see more of early in the first part of a tour, because typically he's still fairly rested. But honestly, the tour started January of 84. And here we are in June. And there is only three, four weeks left of the tour. So this is getting near the end of the tour. And he still sounds really good. Now, granted, he had like five days off before this set of shows in London where they came from Tokyo but he sounds fantastic
0: and after this song we get our first sense of the crowd like this could have been an empty sound stage for all I knew until the end of my life when you finally get a sense of the crowd applauding and things and he turns around and talks to them and this is the first time it stops feeling over professional like granted we're only two songs in but that was certainly my first impression of this concert was wow this is like really straight laced you know obviously you know most of if not all of these comments are planned out But they're just so random. They're not like perfect setups and jokes. There's a lot of right, little non sequiturs, little silliness.
1: I caught that too. It's, you know, where now he's got a banter that you expect. Some of this was just felt off the cuff.
0: It harkens back to like a little bit of that punkishness. You know, I have a Clash bootleg where they were on WNEW, I think, in New York. And I was like, all right, we're on WSHIT. you're like, oh, yeah, we know. You're on the radio, so you're going to make a curse word because you're a badass. Right. As much as I love The Clash, Billy, like, he doesn't go that route, but he does, like, just thumb his nose a little at the proceedings. Right. You know, he's making stupid jokes, and he's, like, tapping on the piano and this and that.
2: And even to London. London, England, all right. And, uh... There's also 18 other countries. This is getting televised tonight all over Britain. Uh, it's also going to uh, on the continent. 18 other countries are picking this up. But Hey, don't let that make you nervous or anything, okay? Just a couple hundred million people, but no problem. Uh, I should apologize to the people sitting over here. I know I have my back to you uh, when I'm playing the piano. But, there really ain't no way that I can, uh, I can't strap this on and move around like Pete Townsend. And the other side doesn't have any key. It's also impossible to play bending your fingers the other way. But what I will, I'll try to get over there Which will then make these the lousy seats, okay? Anyway, uh... What? <laughs> yeah, right.
0: TV, they kind of made. can it, everything. Brings us into piano, man. Still nice and early in the set, which I enjoy. Damn. You know, when you don't know what you're gonna get for an ending here.
1: Yeah, I just love this song early in the set. I know it's become a staple near the end forever now. But I just think it sits so well early in the set, playing the big hit in the first third. And just kind of mm-hmm. getting it out of the way, so to speak. I tell you, the last month Metallica's doing festivals in Europe. They put mm-hmm. Inner Sandman in the number three slot the last several shows. Oh, yeah. That's nice. amazing. That's great. And it, and it feels fresh again. Yeah. Something about moving it from the predictable encore slot up in the set just gives it some new energy. Um, that's why I'd love to see Billy kind of move it around a little more. You know, it feels really good here uh, in number three. This is one of those
0: vocal moments I was talking about. Now, in my life, it seemed like he was in his regular voice, his natural voice. This one, he's, he's doing, he's really singing this one. And it's so nice. Like when he gets into that upper register and it's so clear and he's not straining at all, it's so satisfying to hear. But he's definitely being a singer on this one. Not in a bad way. It's just this versus when he's just almost speaking in his regular voice kind of thing but there's still some informal moments his moments where he throws away the end of the phrase as he would speak
1: it and i liked again the jazzy breakdown little breakdown over the piano solo gives it a little jazzy pop to it i don't know if you caught this jack but at the end of the song billy mimes that he's making a note and he said all right crowd likes piano man (laughs) i didn't see that okay Totally took me back to that old bootleg where he's like, all right, crowd likes impressions. Remember oh, that?
0: right. That was like, what, 71 into 71, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Same same <laughs> bit on a bigger scale, this was. Yeah, that's true. Next is another staple of his
0: concerts, at least over the past couple of years, Don't Ask Me Why. We get a little more uh, lack of uh, formality where he brings out the road crew, introduces them as the gay caballeros. To do the, the <laughs> hand clapping and things. Uh, yeah, if you've, well, I know you have, but if you've ever listened to um, the outtakes from Songs in the Attic when they do Don't Ask Me Why, he makes yeah. the same joke, but it's it's kind of a little more drawn out. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's a whole announcement before they actually start playing. So this time it works a little better just because it just comes in and out. Yeah. He just yeah. introduces them real quick and they keep going.
1: Doesn't dwell on it. Definitely
0: makes the song feel bigger, makes the whole show feel bigger, just bringing out about those extra people. It's funny to think that the core band is the same number of people as Life From Long Island. Now, later on in this show, there's going to be more people, but my impression is that Life From Long Island actually had more people on stage because it just felt busier, it felt more poppin'. Right. And even, it, you know, there were times, even on this one, they brought more people on, it still didn't feel... Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Organic. Yeah. So, But uh, yeah, this is nice. Don't ask me why it's never been one of my favorites. I don't know. Yeah. To be honest with you, I don't know how it stays in there.
1: Honestly, to me, this is one of those where I like it better on the record. Yeah. And I tell you what, just hearing real live hand claps during the bridges here, that keyboard or sample, whatever they're doing the last several years, gotta go. (laughs) Bring the road crew back out. Now, Allentown, I wrote
0: another professional tempo. They really make sure not to speed this up. But again, now listen to the vocals. You hear him slip in and out of character. You know, we're in Allentown, so we're not gonna, we shouldn't have a Long Island accent and there is none on the record but here you'll now you'll start to hear him slip into his regular voice outside of the i'm singing allentown voice we talked about whether or not the pipe sound is is if you if we're actually hearing what mark's doing yeah i think this is real because he doesn't hit it the whole time he just hits it in these two spots like they had the triggers back then (laughs) to, to to sync that up perfectly Unless they overdubbed it, but they couldn't because this was a live broadcast.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And if you notice, we've got Nylon Curtain Tour, you know, year or two prior. He's doing the pipe and it looks like a nice brand new straight pipe, right? Right. Then you get to the Innocent Man Tour. That thing's getting pretty bent now. Yeah. It's losing its form a little bit. Fast (laughs) forward three more years to the bridge tour. That pipe is destroyed. So he's definitely really hitting it. And there's that, oh, for sure. Because you can actually see on the bridge tour videos from Russia, when he makes contact, you can see like little fragments go. Oh, yeah. In some spots. And you'll if you notice when he is playing it, he will release it for that split second that he's hitting it. So he's not killing his other hand. Probably opens up the sound a little too. Otherwise, it'd be really, really, really deadened. dead. Yeah. And I thought vocally too. Yeah. I, you know, overall, that had a, the song had a similar feel to it. The nylon curtain tour. I also wrote. Mark is really earning his keep with those dance moves. I know, right? He really is a, a foil on stage. You know, the band is amazing. Clearly, the most animated member of the classic Billy Joel band was Liberty, but he's behind the drums. Right. I absolutely love the Lords and love all the you know all the guys in the 70s and 80s there, but they weren't super animated on stage, and neither was Richie. Richie is an incredible player. Mark's a great player, but Mark brought this showmanship energy that gave the Billy Joel live show a whole different dynamic on stage. A lot of moments
0: in this one where you really see him come in. I guess like live from Long Island, he was there, but I don't think his role had developed or had blossomed as much by then, because that was probably his first tour, right? Yeah, it was,
1: not Kirk tour.
0: Next, find it somewhat, I don't know, maybe ironic that they actually play Fanfare for the Common Man live and then switch over to the pre-recorded crickets and helicopter for Goodnight Saigon. I mean, obviously, they weren't going to fly in a real helicopter, but they actually were playing fanfare at the beginning of this. You
1: know, with the Innocent Man tour being a very horn heavy album, uh, Billy does have a horn section on this tour, and uh, we'll get into that as their feature more prominently. But here you have Lawrence playing this live.
0: Billy's voice sounds very thin. It's another voice he's doing, and it sounds great in this case. This, This is an instance where He's playing a character and that character should have a thin kind of frail voice, you know, lost, uh, stranded in the jungle kind of feel. If I may yeah. make a Springsteen reference <laughs> by accident, <laughs> it's also a moment where the isolation really works. Like where I was saying before, it feels like, you know, some of this show so far has felt lonely. And one of the things is that each member, seems to be in his own spotlight with darkness around them. This is the first song in which, the
1: lights meet. They're starting to be clumped together in a group. They're really starting to appear more as a unit. And they've got the veterans on stage singing the chorus of this. Something he started doing right away on the Nylon Curtain Tour, but just gives that such another emotional layer. Wasn't an obvious choice. Like, you don't think about it when you hear the record, but it's like it creates such a powerful moment when he does it on stage, brings out the veterans, and wherever he's at on tour, he'll bring out local veterans and You know, there's been times where he's done first responders in certain situations. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really beautiful touch and nice way to honor them. It is. It's
0: definitely a nice way to honor them. And I want to stress that before I make my next point. I think it also almost cynically gives the song a little layer of validation. For anybody that thinks he's kind of carpetbagging, number one, he's spotlighting the veterans. And number two, the veterans are showing up. I was a little disappointed he didn't put put any uh, grit on Remember Charlie. But they make up for it with this really driving moment coming out of the last verse. Yeah. And like, Lib Lib stands up at the end. They really brought it by the end of the song.
1: Yeah, it really built up to the end there. I noticed the Charlie thing, too. That's funny. It just caught my attention. I was like, oh, interesting choice. Coming out of Goodnight Saigon. Interesting. The first song where the tempo feels elevated. Pressure. And Liberty starts it. Well, he started my life, but that was kind of a different thing. But like... Liberty goes into the groove of pressure after Out of Goodnight's "I Gone," and it's it's moving, and so is Billy. <laughs> uh, you
0: know, he runs with the water in his hand. I think I distinctly remember him doing that when I saw him at Nassau Coliseum on the River of Dreams tour. This is the one where I think I noticed some sound issues, where the
1: intro comes
0: in very low and the guitars yes. sort of swell in. There was a broadcast error there; they didn't know that was coming.
1: Right, I think so too. But as I could start to hear them creep into the intro, I really liked what they were doing. So I wish I could have heard it as intended.
0: (laughs) I don't know if it's a clam or an embellishment at the beginning on Billy's part uh, on the synth line. I can't tell. I'm going with clam because he doesn't do
1: it the second time.
0: Or maybe that's why Billy's uh, Billy and I'm not. (laughs) Because he's like, this is where it goes.
1: Or maybe he just, yeah, maybe it was an intentional embellishment. And then he's like, oh, that didn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and he just decided to leave it alone. As we mentioned, Billy took off running and he's now stationed at the Yamaha CP80, which is uh, right up next to Liberty.
0: And what a great frame they use this twice where Liberty's in the foreground and Billy's in the background and Billy's very calm and, and Liberty's Liberty just doing his thing. But the, the framing on it's great because it's like, I, I would say that Liberty's like two thirds of the frame with Billy in the background. Bill, they framed it so like, if if there's like a circle of open space around the way that Liberty is hunched over, and where sticks come in, and that makes like a like a semicircle, it, it gives just enough room to see Billy like almost over his shoulder or on the other side of the symbols. Yeah, I like that too. Some fluctuations on "Here You Are" in the ninth, the way he fluctuates his voice. Another instance of he's starting to he's slipping between voices, between his pressure voice and between what's probably his natural voice. Cause you know when he puts grit on it, like that's as far as we can tell his natural, his you know what he what comes out of him naturally, I think, uh, or at least what sounds the most natural. So that starts coming through. Uh, mm-hmm. The all your life part has a, like a haunting feel to it before he he gives it grit. Yeah, I like that he's winded at the end. Again, makes it feel
1: alive. The, those are the kind of moments that like I like to see, where it's not so polished that everything seems like easy. He's working for it. So you know he's giving you his energy and not just going up there phoning it in. Leave a tender moment alone.
0: I, I like this live version more than the record, I think.
1: I'm with you there. Top to bottom, I just love this. Billy brings out Toots Thielmans, which that's the only way you could really do it right. No one else but Toots really, really plays that way. There's others exactly. who can kind of get there, but something about the way he played.
2: Thank you. I want to introduce a friend of ours. This is a guy, uh, I went over to uh, Paris just to get him on this next record. I think he's the uh, best harmonica player in the world, Mr. Toots Thielman.
0: Now, for the record, didn't they did they take the tape over to him and then he recorded his part over it? They took the tapes to France. And I think that's that's a big part of the difference here is is letting them all play off each other like that.
1: One thing that was kind of interesting too, because as they're starting to get it set up for the next song, you see like the Roku bring out some congas um because there's mm-hmm. that percussion going on. So there there's a few things to get set up and you can actually see Toots kind of waiting off in the wings waiting for his introduction. Though so he's already up there ready to walk out, but you can see him. I love the piano intro. I love starting it with the piano. It's just a sweet understated way to to start it. And then the pickup into where the song starts on the record. I just really like how they did that. And the, vocally
0: wise, there's some great shots of Billy where you can see how, I mean, this has to be the top of his register in, in quite a few places. I think he's really pushing it, but you could see the way he he uses his posture and and his lips and his mouth to to get those sounds that are probably not always in his wheelhouse. It seems like that's what he does to get the light and expressive notes. That's some serious vocal technique. Just mm-hmm. just knowing how to like you know move your move yeah. your body to get yeah to get that to happen. I know like um and you know little things like that. So you see how he's like pulling his lips and things like that to get those mm-hmm. expressive notes that he doesn't use all that often anywhere else but on this song.
1: And then you'll see a few times. I noticed I think it was on this song as well too where where he's trying to get a little bit of grit in the voice, he'll kinda of cock mm-hmm. his head a little bit. And he's like pushing a little more. And like right. when he does that, it gives it a whole nother tonality as well. There's a lot to look at in
0: this one just to see how he you know how what he has to do to get those different sounds. And it makes you appreciate the various tones that he has just in one song. They've
1: got a camera positioned uh, behind Toots as well too. So uh, you're talking about the you know the shots. Where it's going through Liberty with Billy in the background, mm-hmm. they're kind of doing something a little similar. Where they've got a camera kind of over Tuz's shoulders, and you see Billy downstage with a smaller part of the frame.
0: Yeah, they do some overlay screens too, where you know it's two camera angles. At
1: one. The vocals at the end, where Billy is just kind of riffing a bit. Yeah, so good.
0: I mean, look, if, we, if we're gonna do a live Innocent Man album, this is the version to use. Hundred <laughs> percent. So from there, we daringly, I think, go into a second ballad in a row and the long one at that for as big as this song is, we
1: get Innocent Man. I don't know if you noticed when they started the opening, you know, groove and notes, big crowd reaction. Like they knew it. Yeah. They picked up on that. Well,
0: I guess it was a title track. I guess it was getting some airplay. Yeah. I really appreciated Doug and Lib how tight they are on this one. I think they were really, they weren't doing anything that difficult, but they were, you know, their, their lock in was really noticeable and appreciated here.
1: For as long a song as it is, it's really easy for it to get kind of meandering or also get boring and just kind of be flat. It just kept a nice tight groove and pulse throughout it. There's some extra guitar
0: chunking uh, in the verses. I did that that. that. that helps fill it out a little. Mm-hmm. Acoustic guitar strums as well, just to give it a little lift here and there. But yeah, David Brown kind of, ch- 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 you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that gave I love it just that. just
1: a little more movement so it didn't get too bad. You know, that's one of the things I loved about Russell and David as guitar players. They weren't flashy in most instances, but they added just the right touch of color in in those spots. Yeah, the key word there is color. Putting your brush to the canvas there a little bit. Yeah, just enough. And then knowing when to get back out of the way again. Right. I'm hot and cold on the saxophone. Yeah, the horns and the pre-chorus. Yeah, like, I get it.
0: You don't have an orchestra and you don't want it just to just be synths, especially back in uh, 84. Right. But the horns just like, it
1: gave it almost like a show band feel or something.
0: It was like a Sammy Davis Jr.
1: kind (laughs) of. I think that should have been low in the mix and it might have had a better effect. Blended with the synths. This here too, speaking of the chorus, Peter Hewlett taking the lead on the vocals. So... Right away, the Innocent Man tour, Billy is not singing the chorus, the high parts. But we've
0: seen him do it elsewhere. And I wonder if if he didn't hear because he knew this was
1: being broadcast. He didn't want to blow his voice early. He didn't start doing it until like the last 20 years. Like the key had lowered and all of that. The Innocent Man and the bridge tours. It was Peter on both of those tours. Stormfront and beyond, it was Crystal. And then at some point, he started going for it for the first time.
0: A lot of voice on this one, speaking of. We get that, we get his deep voice. We get that sort of tight thing he does like that. Like this is that sort of crooner voice that he'll do. Line by line, he'll, he'll go like not even within the stanza. He'll stay the same. He'll, he'll keep changing it up. And then Peter Hewlett goes a little off the chain at the end. Like this is his moment.
1: It sounded good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh, it did. But it's like, whoa, holy moly. Well, especially yeah, yeah. too because it seems so like someone singing that high with that much power. I mean, it was just like, right. it kind of blows your doors off a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny at the end of the tune as well, too. I don't know if you caught Billy talking about his voice lowering, getting lower in his 30s. Given another uh, seven years there. (laughs) Well, which is funny, too, because, you know, guy must have been a glutton for punishment because he just put out arguably one of his most vocally challenging albums.
0: I always said it feels like he knew it was going to be a swan song. He's like,
1: I I swear he must have been like, oh, I might as well get this all. uh..." He's like, I can still do it. I'm going to do it now because by... Two years from now I can't.
0: Yeah. So now we get into some introductions. This is the first time he mentions Cory's imminent birth, I believe. He
1: does, yeah. He mentions Liberty and his wife having a baby any minute.
0: So Billy chides live a little like, oh, what's this guy doing here? His wife's about to give birth. And you see Liberty saying, I do it for you, and he's making a big show of it. Yeah. And Bill's like, yo, oh, you do for you? And he goes, No, you're doing it for the diapers. <laughs> <laughs> A bit of ominous foreshadowing. Let's, let's, let's right. address the yeah. elephant in the room.
2: Right. You, you worry about, see the drummer here? His wife's having a baby right now. What is he doing here, right? This is for me. This is for the diapers. That's what this is for. No, it's any minute, uh, you know, so we'll let you know if anything happens. Oh, wow, man, like Woodstock, you know. <laughs> well, wow, we had a baby born. It's a nation. All right, here with
0: that. Uh So from here, before we get into the longest time, we get some real vocals, feats of strength here with some acapella, uh, What's Your Name,
1: mm-hmm. Oh,
0: doo kind of song there. And I want to point out that these guys are not, close to each other i mean yes they have monitors but they're right. what 10 15 20 feet away from each other i mean three of them are together but then mark rivera's somewhere else and billy joel's in the third position third location
1: the one thing that caught me too right away because i'm like for what this song is trying to be felt really <laughs> disconnected because they're all so
0: spread out if you wanted to really do it you have to get like the one omnidirectional mic and yes. then have everybody ar- around it which they i mean they could have done it's not like he didn't have money in the, in the budget for one more microphone but maybe it gives them a little more control i don't know i don't know why i mean yeah. they definitely had time to get down there with all, the, with all the talking here but he didn't take it
1: by the bridge tour they started doing that where Doug and lib stayed in position playing but everyone yeah. else who was singing was downstage with wireless mics
0: give it up for brian ruggles mixing that on, on separate yeah. mics and blending them so nicely yeah. I like the fact that he's like, he calling an audible. He goes, just do the end. So then they have yeah. to like jump to the spot that they have to, and then, and then he holds and then everybody comes in at the end. So from there we get right into the longest time, uh, a lot more movement from Billy. It's a little less of an impression than right. the album is. This is where he really starts throwing away the end of the phrases instead of yeah. getting all the way through them, you know, kind of right. thing as, as he does on the record.
1: And I noticed from a, you know, production standpoint too, and you know we'll see later he does have a wireless mic and he used one at, at the Alan Kurt tour. but for this song, he's using a corded mic, yeah, with an extra long cable because he's dragging that thing all around the stage.
0: <laughs> yeah, he is. I wonder if that was a last minute thing that he decided to do, or here's a theory for you. It was important for them to all have the same mic so that it was easier to mix those harmonies. That's very possible. So Now on the version I have, it looks like they tried to end it here and then it picks up like as another broadcast or something. Did you see that?
1: Yeah, it's like a part one and a part two. So it was like,
0: yeah, there's a break in the show. But then it comes right back in with this night which I wrote. I know it's that tour, but wow, there's so much Innocent Man on this on this show.
1: That album was so deep with hits. Now, you know, with Now Curtain Tour, he only had two hits, really, off of that record, but he was still doing, yeah. like, four songs. Um, right. But yeah, it was a lot of Innocent Man on this one.
0: Uh, we have more players on stage now, so now it's feeling more like, got this weird impression that, like, the first part of the simulcast or it wasn't going out to as many people anymore. He starts, he seems to start to relax. Like the whole show opens up more. He's got more people on stage. It starts to feel a little more informal. Now here's where also which makes me think it was two different broadcasts. That isolation is gone now. And now we're getting a lot of these like upward facing camera angles where it feels like a party because it's like you see the people moving around and the lights are above them. So you don't right. get that like darkness and spotlight feeling more. It feels like the entire stage is flooded with color. Even if
1: you're only seeing a small area. Yeah, it does start to have a different flavor to it. You're right. Was this a second night and a different crew, camera crew, and did get in different things or like what? But like the tone changed in the second half. It definitely does. I wonder if there's like a missing
0: song somewhere because it, this is a lot of ballads. The last half hour is a rocking tour de force. But until then, it's a lot of slow songs. So it makes me say I wouldn't be surprised if something was cut in between an innocent man and this night that got us to this point
1: yeah it's hard to say because i'm looking at like you know again and i take setlist.fm with a grain of salt sometimes especially the older stuff but like they're showing for june 8th that it does go an innocent man longest time this night but you know what it could be just the camera crew it really
0: could i mean maybe if maybe if they were using those angles earlier on we would have had that impression of it i wouldn't be saying it felt isolated
1: To your point about a lot of songs, six songs from An Innocent Man on the show. And the only thing I'm complaining about is Easy Money wasn't one of them. Six from An Innocent Man, four from Glass Houses, three from The Nylon Curtain, three from The Stranger, two from 52nd Street, one from Piano Man, one from Turnstiles.
0: Yeah, and then just to wrap up this night... Billy has some trouble with this one. Yeah. His voice cracks at the end and you hear him go flat on the first Tomorrow. Yeah. It kind of sounded cool, but I'm like, nah, you went flat. (laughs) I thought the backing vocals were solid on this one. Yeah, they were spot on.
1: That's why it does feel like there's songs missing because it seems like these don't make for a a sequence that makes sense. Because you go in Innocent Man, you know, we said Innocent Man, the longest time this night, and then we go into Just the Way You Are. Like I said, it's just a lot of ballads in a row. Yeah.
0: And usually I skip over just the way you are, but you got some really spirited, great vocals on this one. He takes the bridge in the style of Stevie Wonder, Yeah, uh, which which gives it a totally different feel. Really, really cool. So much so that the saxophone almost ruins it because the saxophone is sort of spot on to the record in a lot of ways. And it's like, yeah. I mean, Mark's a lot smoother and this is one of those songs where you really realize it. But yeah, where Billy's like taking the vocals in a different direction and then we get the album solo. It's almost a disappointment,
1: right? Like you would hope that with him going, going this way, they would kind of follow it a little bit, adjust them to like break away a little bit as well. Yeah. Did you know that notice at the top of the song, he says this song was not written by Barry white. Yeah. (laughs) You know, another thing you're talking about some of the mixing issues, you notice um, Mark Sachs isn't in the mix right before the solo because he's playing that. Oh, right. And then go, it goes into the solo It's not there right away, and then you can hear it fade in.
0: Billy Joel is hard to mix because the lead, the principal instrument, bounces around so much. It's not like rock band and, you know, when you see the guitarist going for a guitar solo, you turn him up. Like, it could be any number of people that are about to be spotlighted. So after this, we get some more band introductions. Uh, these are pretty funny. David LeBolt started with Bowie, so now he knows all about fashion. David Brown looks like he's in Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got his hair coiffed now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how about Russell being called the Madman when he said mad- the Madman? I thought he was going to introduce Liberty. <laughs> Next time we talk to him, I, I'm going to be like, "All right, what's the story with the Madman? Well, what don't we know? What didn't you tell us in that fantastic hour and a half we had with you?"
1: <laughs> yeah, and then Liberty, yeah. the new father, and then is this where Liberty puts the like towel? over his shoulder with yeah. the baby <laughs> yeah yeah like he's got a baby
0: <laughs> and then we get a nice little snippet of speak softly love which is the theme from the godfather which was yes. very pleasing because he goes into scenes from an italian restaurant <laughs> that's
1: right that's perfect
0: brenda eddie and a dead salazzo the turk on the floor right
1: <laughs> and then the comment about doug the Doug's been would be the longest so he gets to dress
2: comfortable let me introduce the band to you so you know where everybody is up here on on the saxophone. That's Mark Rivera. Uh, Let's see, this next guy, very, very natty dresser, natty dresser. You know, one tour with David Bowie. He thinks he knows all about fashion now. But he does play a good uh, synthesizer and keyboards and uh, organ. That's Dave LeBolt. <laughs> Who's next? Uh, uh, yes, the madman. On rhythm guitar and vocals, Russell Jabbers. next guy's got a totally new look for tonight. He knew we were gonna be on TV. <laughs> kind of moving into the Duran Duran vibe a little. <laughs> like, got his hair coiffed and everything. No, it, it, it looks good, there You're getting your act check, check. together, it's nice. Ali Guitar, David Brown. This next guy's been with me the longest, so he can dress comfortably. (laughs) Raw. On bass guitar, uh, that's Doug Stegmaier. any second now on the drums, Liberty DeVito.
0: Now we go into scenes. Yeah, scenes, I love scenes from an Italian restaurant, but like whenever we watch these things, I'm just bored with it. Most, I think, usually because like we're watching it. Like by the time we get the scenes in any of these things, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm usually here like we go. squeezing this in because we have to be ready for a podcast. And I'm like, all right, come on, it's scenes. We know what's going to happen. There's a couple of nice moments, but overall, this one felt stiff. All that stuff I liked about the the big drum sound and stuff yeah. didn't work for me here. It sounded big, but you weren't getting, like, Liberty's ghost notes. The feel of the pocket wasn't there. But the Dixieland part was really, really nice. With the horns. And then, yeah, I don't know. The Brenda and 80 part, I couldn't tell if it was stiff or if it was just the mix, like I was saying.
1: That's about but, all I have on that one, too. It was just kind of came and went for me. Um, big applause from the crowd, so they reacted well to it. And it did yeah. feel like this was, like, the moment where the show was... Okay, especially after that long run of ballads, it's like, okay, now we're going to pick up the tempo of the show. And it doesn't
0: stop from here on out at all. It's a slow burn, big payoff with this set list this time
1: where we've gotten, you know, the last quarter of the set has become largely predictable in a lot of ways. If it feels different on this in this room, just with the just with the addition of a few songs that typically aren't near the end of this the show, because after this, we we go into sometimes a fantasy, which like big energy on this one.
0: There's a nice drum hiccup with like Liberty Drum like seems to purposely drop a beat, which gives it a nice feel. It slows down a little on the bridge, but it's a nice. What I wrote was in there was this elastic moment at the end where Lib and and Dave LeBolt really had to feel their way out of it, yeah, through it. Uh, And you see, you know, Dave like sort of jump up, and I don't know if that was as a cue or if he was
1: just that into it. (laughs) I saw that too. (laughs) He's LeBolt, but I will say this: now that LeBolt was kind of finally. On the Nylon Curtain tour, I felt like he was in like a Keith Emerson cage of keyboards where it was like surrounding him. And he was pretty stuck. This tour, he was finally starting to able to like come out and like be a little more animated. And you saw that considerably on this and the uh, bridge tours. Yeah, I wonder if the
0: technology was getting better. He didn't need as many or what. I love David Brown's finger picking
1: solo. It it just really got me, and then I'm like, ah, oh, it's done. Leads right into still rock and roll,
0: so we're really feeling the big payoff now. The roller coaster is now has now crested the hill,
1: and uh, another fun intro on David Brown. He had some fun little moments going on in the intro. That's where it starts to feel like a rock and roll show and not a Broadway play. You know, when, yes. there, when there's when there's
0: these stretch out vamp moments where people you know can take a little solo here and there. You know, now the lights are up, so it feels a little more like live from Long Island. You can see everybody. Unfortunately, we can
1: really see billy joel's dance moves from the music video billy tried to do his elvis as well yeah those two and fours from liberty he was just slamming it he was coming down hard he goes on like two drums too he was both hands on that it was like the third rack tom in i want to say in the snare drum ouch on that sack solo swing and a miss for mr rivera (laughs) swing and a miss poor guy because he's done some great versions of that solo but this was just something happened
0: funny enough yeah the way you know liberty's kind of messing with the beat a little so i went back and tapped it out when you're coming out of that solo it feels like there's a mistake but there's not (laughs) uh there's like a slight displacement that kind of works at first i was like did somebody screw up i'm like no that's that's a steady tempo like you know somebody made a choice there yeah you're right
1: So what's the intro to Uptown Girl? Did you catch that? It was something. This is definitely a song. I couldn't place it though. You know, what's funny here is like, you know, at the
0: beginning of this, Billy looked and sounded real professional. He's getting now like, I don't know if he's getting sweaty or he's getting puffy, but like now he looks like ugly punch drunk 70s Billy all of a sudden. Right. And that might be the lighting.
1: Yeah, that's true. I gotta say the comments on this song song in particular are hilarious. Is this the the cocaine version, right? (laughs) Yeah. This tempo is chaos and I love it. (laughs) God, that drummer in the back, fire. This version is so chaotic, LMAO. Everyone is flying. This is an absolute speed run. This man can't dance worth shit, but he sure can sing. (laughs) (laughs) And then another one said cocaine with a bunch of exclamation points.
0: This is the one too. You can, like, see him, like, kind of touching his forehead. Somebody, I think somebody comments of, like, yeah, you can see when, like, the coke is just kicking in because he's, like, kind of touching his forehead. Like, oh, boy. Yeah, so, uh, overall, a, a rollicking good time here.
1: I noticed Doug was pretty animated for, for Doug.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was He was even bopping along. Yeah. Now we take it up another notch. We get Big Shot. Dance-wise, we have the Life from Long Island crab hopping going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going with Al Pacino. In the middle of this one? Uh-huh. Now, the big question I have here, because on this one, this is where you really start to, to realize, um, you know, for better or worse, and it kind of works, you know, how many moves are going on on stage that are, like, at this point, clearly blocked out. Like, even if they didn't plan them, plan them originally, right. like, they probably evolved over time and now they're like they're set you know like the way mark and, and billy interact but you wonder if if billy is like actually almost good, getting a little too out of hand and mark literally has to pull him
1: back from the edge of the stage like uh oh
0: <laughs> it's like all right mark's
1: wrangling him in yeah it's funny Someone like commented like who's the bodyguard someone's like lmo that's lmao that's mark rivera <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> like who's the security guy taking care of billy it's like now that's mark and it's even funny Like when he spins On the piano
0: Like it's such a corny move oh, but yeah But it fits You know the character In the song is Such a blowhard It's like Ooh look at me I'm spinning on the piano Right Yeah <laughs> We get a weaker goose step Than we did in Houston
1: 79 And he's looking directly At the band while doing it Make, Makes you wonder If he was told not to <laughs> And he's doing Some of the moves too Like he did on In 82 With the you know, balancing the mic on his hand and grabbing it before yeah. it falls. And the only thing about this one, I didn't like the extra horns. It was a little too show bandy for me. You know, going back one more song, though. I did like the use of the horns in Uptown Girl, hand claps. That fit a lot better. On a serious note, thought, I mean, the horns were great players. But like those hand claps on Uptown Girl just set such a great feel. It doesn't really happen live on Billy Joel's shows. So have the horns just doing the simple quarter note hand claps. I thought it was a nice touch, but anyway, that was Uptown Girl.
0: So then we have our last song from Innocent Man. Now is Tell Her About It. Yeah, you know, I guess it makes sense to split this up from Uptown Girl, but it's it's a not it is like sort of a notch down in energy from from Big Shot, not yeah. too much. And what you notice here is is how well he can put it all back. You know, his adrenaline must be pumping. And he's going nuts at the end of Big Shot. And then he brings it, he reigns it all in. And then does Tell Her About It fairly straight, all things considered. It
1: really felt like he was starting to unravel and he was like spent. But you're right. He comes back with Tell Her About It and just like, it just had a totally different feel. And it's like, it's like back in the show again. And the horn sounded great. The energy was up. It was just like, nice, solid performance. He still had his voice after... You'd think he might have shredded it on Big
0: Shot, but he didn't. Right. Right? You know, he was in control of it the whole time. And to that point, you know, this is another re- spot where you can like key into his voices. He's almost doing call and response with himself. Like he's changing his voices, like almost mid line right now, yeah. or like mm-hmm. on every other line between like his sort of teller about it, innocent man fifties voice, and his regular Billy voice. Like he's almost like he's talking to something. You know, it's almost like he's doing
1: two sides of a conversation. You know, this is a song, too, that didn't have a long life in in the live shows. I actually looked it up. The last time he played it was October 31st, 1987, in Melbourne, Australia. There's
0: a lot of moving parts in this one. I mean, it's a lot of
1: horns, and it's a lot of backup vocals. It works with this set of musicians on stage. But I, I can't imagine... I have to go back and listen to it, but like, you know, having a synth horn patch, I can't imagine it working nearly as well otherwise. And then... With his voice steadily deepening, I'm sure it just became harder and harder to sing. You know, you need that that
0: higher, almost naive sounding voice to do it. I don't think you could be 70. You're 70, you sound like uh, somebody's dad telling you how to live your life. So we get another long code out of this one going into You May Be Right. And you realize when he sings on You May Be Right, this has to be his natural voice. Yeah. Because it just sounds so unencumbered singing yep. this way.
1: Do you notice the horn player with some sticks? playing on liberty's drums
0: yeah liberty was just playing the hi-hat and he was playing the drum instead
1: <laughs> it always reminded me of like uh, the drunk woman at a bar gig who gets a pair of a, a hold of a pair of sticks and you can't get her off the stage <laughs> oh. oh they're the worst folks if you can see what i see right now you can see the years of times jack has experienced this very thing
0: I have had women, and you think I wouldn't mind, but it gets old real quick. I have, had, I have had women sit on my lap during a during a show and you're like, I appreciate it, but I'm trying to work here. Well, I mean, well, Philly, just my, my friends that came down from Brooklyn, they're like, Jack, people from Philadelphia do not respect the stage, especially in like Northeast where it's like cover band land. It's like, nope, they have all been trained to come up and take a tambourine. Uh, I've showed you the videos of like when we do Piano Man twice. just walked up yeah and just went and and lexus has had to like shoo them back off stage and you're like what 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 in the world makes you think this is appropriate like you know like
1: in what world is this okay yeah
0: yeah i mean we've played shows where like you know you're on the bar floor and some asshole goes by and just like starts pushing the keys on the keyboard on the way out i'm like oh you you deserve a smack right i had a guy yeah i had like this one drunk guy we were playing in the corner one time it's like just a pickup trio and he just took one of my sticks and just like started like slamming on the drums i had like and i'm trying to do it without losing the beat i had to talk to him. i said like i always said like i talked to him like he was like a three-year-old like you give me that right
1: now knock that off
0: i know what else to do with this guy
1: and he just looked at me like <laughs> that's amazing but that's totally what this felt like i'm sure they you know they were buddies they became buddies on the tour and all this stuff so it was all fun yeah. but like it totally i was like Uh, who let somebody up on stage and get a hold of a pair of drumsticks. I'm like, I've I've seen this story too many times. (laughs) (laughs) How did they get past Mark Rivera, the bodyguard? (laughs) Right. Horns, though. I felt that the horn stabs were oddly out of place on this. Felt
0: like a Stones concert when the Stones have past their prime. But I guess you got them. You might as well get the most out of them. I did like seeing Billy and Russell sharing a mic at a few spots. That was fun. And that leads us to the encore, where once again... He reigns it back in because she's calm at the beginning of Only the Good Die Young. Now, this does make me think clearly there's something cut out here because he had to
1: have left the stage. He had to give a thank you. Good night. The setlist FM does say that between Big Shot and Tell Her About It is an encore break there. So that actually would make sense with Billy kind of getting able to reset a little bit, you know, cool off, get some water. And then another encore break. Between you, maybe, right? And only the good die young.
0: Yeah, and that one you feel a lot more. The one going into only the good die young. But again, like he, they're doing this spotlight thing again, where like everything around him is dark. It's like, dude, it's only the good die young. It's the end of the show. Like, bring the house lights up. You know, this is why like songs in the attic was great without these because you didn't need to hear them live. You know, if you're there, it's a freaking gas. If you're watching at home, you're like, okay. You know, especially if you're like me and you're and you're just making notes and you're like, all right, it's only the good die young. Like. <laughs> right I like the use of the horn section here yeah the horn section on this one always works out better because it yeah. it has more of a rave up feel Yep. Um, you see Mark on the piano and then again, you know, again, this is, uh, you know, this is where you realize that, uh, you know, there's, there's blocking going on, you know, they know what they're doing. It's not necessarily fake, but it's, you know, it's developed certainly Yeah, for,
1: for yeah. maximum, you know, visual impact. I'd love to see like, you know, cause these things are kind of developed throughout a tour as you kind of figure out the flow and figure out what works based on the stage of the sets and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I'd lo- love to see like, okay, I want to see the opening night of a tour, middle of the tour and last show of the tour and see how, how things changed over the, over the tour. Cause you know, if you get a couple close to each other, it's going to be pretty similar, but you'd be amazed how much things do change throughout the course of a tour as they just figure things out. That brings us to the end
0: of this show. Rocking good time at arguably Billy's second commercial peak coming off an innocent man. You know, interesting to see what a show looks like off that innocent man peak versus off that stranger peak or even off that stormfront peak let's hear from you guys did anybody uh see this live did anybody have the bootleg back in the day let us know what you thought let us know uh, what your impression was obviously i'm always really curious too you know who saw these on vhs back before youtube where we didn't have the luxury of, of seeing all these shows and you got a hold of one Like, what was that like? You know, what was you feeling seeing this, especially coming off live from Long Island? You know, how did you uh, sort of compare these two?
1: As much as I do love YouTube and it being a treasure trove of so much content at your fingertips, there was something about like tape trading and like getting a copy in the mail or from, you know, somebody who you knew had it that just heightened the excitement for this kind of thing. It felt so new, you know, and something you had never seen before. You can find Five different uploads of this on YouTube right now, which is amazing. But I don't know, there was something that was really special about, you know, tracking down a copy of this thing you never knew existed.
0: That scarcity aspect to it. So let us know what you guys think. Like I said, who saw it on Bootleg? Who saw it just after Live from Long Island? Podcast at gmail.com or find us on the socials Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. GlassHouses,
1: a Billy Joe podcast. You guys have been so great with uh, the five star ratings and it's been a minute since we've gotten any reviews, but uh, I tell you what, they help us out a ton, and it's just two minutes of your time to just leave a little comment on Apple Podcast and Five Star Rating, wherever you get your podcast. really, because I know there's a lot of different spots where you can do ratings and reviews, and they really go a long way in helping visibility of the podcast. Year over year, we're just growing leaps and bounds, and it's really because of you guys tuning in every two weeks. And it's cool, too, because, you know, we get to see some of our stats, and we get to you know, see like episodes from two, three years ago, like have life again. And we still are seeing people find us for the first time in 2022. And that's all because of you guys sharing our posts and commenting and listening and keep it up because you're the reason we uh, are having the success we're having. And we have a blast doing it regardless, but you guys make it that much more fun. And with that, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks guys.